You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk to the experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. And in a little bit, we'll talk about health policy issues that impact underserved patient populations, such as access to care and financing or social determinants of health. But first up, let's talk about femtech. Over the past 10 years, investments in femtech have skyrocketed. Femtech includes products, apps like the popular period tracker apps, and even diagnostic tools. But two months ago, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. More than 200 million women have already lost access to abortion care. But there's another problem. The Dobbs decision could negatively impact important research. Some experts warn that with abortion criminalized, period tracking data could become a target for investigators. Already, investigators obtained Facebook data from an 18-year-old and her mother in Nebraska, and they're using it as evidence to charge them with conducting an illegal self-managed abortion. So women are deleting their period tracking apps that, well, we've kind of come to rely on. So there's that. But there's another dark side. If people stop using femtech apps, then perhaps there will be less comprehensive population health data and diversity and equity in medicine will suffer. Anastasia Gledkovskia is a journalist here at Fierce Healthcare. After looking into this more, she was struck by something Bethany Corbin told her that the Dobbs decision could stymie femtech innovation. Bethany is a self-proclaimed femtech lawyer. She's the senior counsel at Nixon Wilt Law, advising femtech and digital health companies on regulatory compliance, privacy, and ethical considerations. And today, we'll hear from Anastasia and Bethany. Hi, Bethany. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. So happy to be here, Anastasia. There's been widespread reporting of femtech companies struggling to advertise on social media platforms. I know this is something we have talked about in the past. For example, their ads promoting sexual and reproductive health products are disproportionately rejected by Facebook compared to ads targeting men. You've said before you've seen a rise in ads related to abortion getting taken down. And the AP recently reported that even posts offering to help male abortion pills have been flagged. Why do you suspect this content gets flagged by these platform algorithms? Yeah, it's a great question. If we're talking about femtech content, and for those who may not be as familiar with the term, when I say femtech, I'm talking about female health technology. So any type of digital health solution that is geared towards improving healthcare for individuals who identify as female. So if we're talking about femtech in general, which might include things right, like your period tracking apps, it could be, you know, pelvic floor apps, those types of products, they have been flagged by Facebook and other social media and advertising companies for, gosh, quite a few years. And oftentimes they're being labeled as inappropriate, offensive, you know, derogatory, sexually explicit. And part of that stems to the fact that women's health is still considered taboo. And there's often a sort of sexuality that's associated with discussions around women's health. So there hasn't been a distinction really in in modern history of the female body from sexuality. So when that happens, that means that these products that are necessary for women's health care, just to even improve their lives, that have no sexual or inappropriate connotations associated with them, they're getting flagged by these algorithms that have been trained to associate those products with sexually explicit activities. 
So that's kind of thing one, right? Thing two is abortion. And so this has happened before the Dobbs decision even, but we've seen a significant number of advertisements, depending on what platform you're on, related to abortion getting censored and pulled. We've even seen content that is medically accurate, and that's trying to point women towards medically accurate solutions for abortion, like, for instance, telemedicine of the abortion pill, teleprescribing of it. We've seen those actually get flagged and completely taken down, while advertisements that are promoting solutions that are either dangerous for abortion or solutions that are not medically sound, those are still getting to stay up. Mm, Yeah. I remember we talked about algorithm training and bias and how these algorithms might not be designed by people who look like the audience that some of these femtech companies are advertising to, right? Do you think that plays a role in why perhaps there's some algorithmic bias going on? Absolutely. So part of algorithmic bias comes down to how your algorithm was originally trained and and the test data on which it was trained. So if you have an algorithm, for instance, that's trained purely on, you know, white Caucasian health data, that's not going to give you the accurate predictions or accurate outcomes that you want for, let's say, you know, LGBTQ users, right, or African American users of your application. So it's really important to promote diversity of data in the algorithmic testing process. Femtech is still relatively new. The term was coined in 2016. And so it's not an industry that's been around for decades on which these social media platforms have had an ability to kind of train their algorithms from the start. So what we are seeing is algorithms that were trained to pick up things like vibrators as being sexually explicit. And now, you know, there's different uses for those. There's different uses for women's healthcare products that have medically backed and medically sound purposes for women's health. And that is that distinction is not getting picked up by the algorithm and it's not being incorporated into these companies' policies and procedures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does being unable to advertise freely affect these companies in terms of their bottom line or how successful they're ultimately going to be on the market? Yeah, advertising has a huge impact, right? Because that's how you reach your customer base. And that's how in femtech in particular, you're starting conversations that are are typically seen as taboo. So not being able to advertise using social media platforms is typically a big disadvantage for these femtech companies because that's where a lot of their user base resides. They have to overcome a lot of discussions about women's health or topics that, for instance, male venture capitalists may not be interested in discussing. So even once they've passed that hurdle, they still have this hurdle of their advertisements getting banned and not being able to get to the audience that they need. So that can be very problematic for their distribution and business models. Some workarounds that I've often heard of are having to redesign your advertisement so that instead of using anatomically correct, medically correct language, you're using things like fruits or vegetables, right, to describe certain parts of the human body so that you can avoid getting triggered through those algorithms and through the policies and procedures. So that is also problematic, not just from, you know, the business perspective selling your product, but because it reinforces the taboos and the stigmas around women's health that we can't even say those terms on a social media platform. We need to be able to break down the barriers and have the open conversations about women's health that are going to be necessary to drive this industry forward. 
Mm. I think you were sort of getting at this. Many areas of the U.S. are healthcare deserts, which means a lot of patients in rural or socioeconomically disadvantaged environments are relying on telehealth. What is Femtech's role in removing access barriers? What Femtech has sought to do is really to put that autonomy, that knowledge, that empowerment back in the hands of anyone who has, you know, a a cell phone, a tablet, a way to access the internet. And so they've done so by building these new applications and these platforms through which individuals identifying as female can access healthcare services that are specifically designed for women. That's something that I really do fear that we're going to lose with the Dobbs decision, and especially um, with individuals not necessarily trusting their femtech applications to protect their privacy and their security. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was going to ask about. Next, um, some people have deleted their period tracker apps or pulled out of clinical studies over privacy concerns. That's damaging to consumer trust in healthcare. That's already been waning during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think it also affects underrepresentation in medical research. So can you talk a bit about how this is going to have a sort of cascading chilling effect potentially for diversity in data and health equity? So here's what I worry about whenever whenever we talk about diversity and access to healthcare as a result of Dobbs. And, and it's kind of on two levels, right? The first has to do with just general abortion access, right? A lot of the individuals who are in and located within those trigger states, um, meaning they're the states that have the abortion bans that came back into effect upon the overturn of Roe versus Wade, there's data that shows that these that the individuals who are accessing abortion care in those states are more likely to be African-American women or Hispanic women rather than Caucasian women. Whenever we take that and we compound it with the fact that those are going to be the same individuals who are going to be more likely to delete their period tracking apps um, and their other types of femtech apps because they're the ones who are in those most restrictive states and they're the ones who have a lot to lose rather than, for instance, an individual who's in California where abortion rights are heavily protected, there's not as much fear for those individuals compared to those who might be residing in trigger states with those laws that could potentially criminalize abortion or abortion access. So those might be the individuals who are more tempted to delete their period tracking apps. And that necessarily means that we're going to have a decreased diversity of data that's being inputted into femtech apps. And as we were discussing a couple minutes ago, right, if we're not training our algorithms up on diverse data, diverse and inclusive data, we're not going to get predictions that are going to be reflective of the entire population that these apps are trying to serve. So when that happens, it can result, you know, in inaccurate outcomes as a result of that algorithm for anyone who's not in the mainstream population. So what a lot of these femtech apps are trying to do is collect that data for the greater good and partner with research institutions to have those research institutions analyze that data and provide long-term insights, solutions, cures, et cetera, to women's healthcare issues. Women have been neglected from the modern medicine system for so long. We don't have the data that we need to study women's health care beyond just, you know, men's health care and applying those insights to women's health. And we've seen historically, right, that women's diseases and symptoms can present differently. So if the health data that's being inputted into these femtech apps is less diverse, 
And that concerns me because then we're having long-term women's health research and solutions not being based on the entire diversity of the population. So I always want the public to recognize that there's you know, long-term downstream consequences to the fact that we have eliminated abortion in certain areas of the United States. Mm. So taking all of that into consideration, it seems like there isn't a whole lot of workaround right now for feb tech companies or for these marginalized populations that need access to these healthcare products or services. What do you think should be the realistic next steps in this sector to ensure that we are not going backwards with respect to health equity? Yeah, it's a great question because we've made some significant strides, especially in femtech, um, in, in just the way that we're talking about women's healthcare today. And so I would hate to see this Dobbs decision result in us, you know, abandoning femtech entirely, going backwards and really losing this, the progress that we've made to date. So what I've been encouraging from the femtech, you know, app company founder perspective is to right now take a step and review all of your privacy and security practices for your application, your platform, your product, and make sure that you are protecting your consumer's health data or other personal data in a way that's going to make them feel comfortable. Because right now we are risking losing a lot of users of femtech products that could one day save their lives. So what I want to make sure is that founders are looking at privacy and security from a user-centric lens. I've got the minimum amount of data I need. I'm not collecting more data than I need. Yes, I've got proper security and access controls, encryption, et cetera, that's going to protect this user data. Yes, I have a privacy policy and maybe I am selling or using data downstream, but I'm making sure it's only for the necessary reasons. Like for instance, you know, downstream use by a healthcare researcher. A company may not really need to be selling that data to a data broker who could then compile it and sell it to law enforcement officers or the general public. And so I've encouraged femtech companies to really take a deep, hard look at their business practices, their privacy practices, their security practices. That's ultimately what the survival of femtech is going to come down to is going to be whether or not consumers trust these applications to input their sensitive health data. We've actually started to get some studies and comparisons out there about the different femtech apps on the on the market. And it's showing that there are some femtech apps out there that are very data hungry, right? Meaning that they're collecting a lot more data than they actually need to perform their functions. For instance, that the larger companies, right, like Clue or Glow or Flow, they may be collecting much more data to do a very similar function to something like Apple Cycle, which is not collecting nearly as much data. Do you think that investors or policymakers also have a role to play in keeping the sector going? So I've started to see some renewed energy in, from the investment side. I've also heard, you know, from other investors who may not necessarily be as focused in their fund or their investments on women's health, a hesitancy to continue investing in women's health, just given the fact that this landscape is so, so changing, right? Um, it, it differs day by day just because, right, states now have the power to control abortion. And so we're seeing a lot of different policies, procedures, laws, bills, et cetera, 
coming to the forefront. And so the landscape for reproductive health is going to keep changing over the next few months and potentially the next few years. And that uncertainty, I think, is causing some investors to kind of take the opposite approach in terms of being a little bit fearful to invest in reproductive health care at this point in time, because they don't know what that field is going to look like. But I would say that those investors who are who have women's, you know, women's health companies, female founded companies, et cetera, as a strong part of their portfolio. They're very energized. They want to keep the funding for this industry going because they recognize, right, that there there is a chance that we could go backwards in terms of women's health care. So, and there's a lot of opportunity as well to keep funding these solutions, fund new solutions, rebuild that access bridge that has now started to crumble based on the Dobbs decision and provide women nationwide with the access that they need. Thank you so much for sharing those ideas. All good points. Um, Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, despite any day-to-day setbacks, what motivates you to do this work and continue going to bat for femtech companies and women's health in general? Yeah, it's, you know, it's definitely been a depressing couple of months just with the, you know, the shift in the landscape. Um, I mean, right now there is a conflation of femtech with reproductive health just because that's where a lot of the solutions to date have been. But femtech is so much more. Um, I mean, there's, there's solutions out there that are being built right now with things like breast cancer, uterine cancer, chronic care conditions, menopause. So, the potential for this industry is huge. And I don't want to see us lose faith or lose funding in this industry because of the Dobbs decision and because we're in an an environment right now that is designed to perpetuate fear. So part of what keeps me going is knowing that I have valuable insights that I can add to femtech founders, um, femtech companies that are out there to help them make their products and their applications better, to help reinstill consumer trust in this industry. Just knowing that if I don't get up every day and continue to try to help femtech companies and help the reproductive landscape, that there's so much that we could lose. And there's so many women who may not have access to healthcare. That is a really motivating factor for me. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for your time today. We'll be following how this plays out. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was an honor to be here. After recording this interview, I reached out again to Corbin to get her thoughts on the Nebraska case where law enforcement used Facebook messages to file charges against a young woman for abortion. Corbin said the news has shaken the public. Now, more people realize the extent of how their data can be used against them. Once law enforcement has reasonable suspicion, she said, they can subpoena data from beyond just your femtech app. That includes social media, direct messaging platforms, even internet search history. And it isn't limited to just cases related to abortion. That was Anastasia Kledkovskia talking with Bethany Corbin, the femtech lawyer. Coming up next, senior editor Heather Landy sits down with Dr. Cameron Matthews to talk about health disparities. But before we continue with our next guest, I have an announcement. Nominations are open for Fierce Healthcare's 2022 Women of Influence. We're looking to highlight 10 women who are leading the charge in transforming the way we do business in healthcare, and we need your help. We're looking for leaders from across the industry who have made an impact in healthcare over the past year and who have proven they are paving a new path forward for the industry. And this is where you come in. Submit your nominations at FierceHealthcare.com you have until the end of the day on September 16th. 
CityBlock Health is a startup focused on providing care for lower-income patients with Medicaid and Medicare. Dr. Cameron Matthews is a family physician who joined CityBlock in January of this year. She comes from a background where she focused on helping underserved populations, including working as a staff physician at the Cook County Jail in Chicago. Now she focuses on larger health policy issues that impact underserved patient populations, like access to care and financing, or social determinants of health. Here is Senior Editor Heather Landy with Dr. Cameron Matthews. Hi, Dr. Matthews. Thanks for joining me today. I am really excited to chat with you. Oh, thanks so much, Heather. This is exciting. Thanks for the conversation in advance. So I think your background as a physician is very interesting. You've spent your career so far working at organizations that provide medical care to underserved patient populations. The term underserved is very broad. So what does that mean? Can you tell me about these patients that you've been working with? Yeah, yeah. And thanks for thanks for bringing this up because I, I think it's, it's definitely um, an area, honestly, within medicine that I, I think maybe gets some lip service, but not necessarily the the attention that particularly these patients, these communities definitely need. I'm underserved. Uh, patients to me mean, um, you know, the, the people, even the communities that are um, otherwise lacking in access to care, lacking in access to services, um, most likely also facing um, significant um, impact from different social determinants of health, whether that be income, lack of health insurance, lack of housing, transportation, uh, or even connection to uh, digital health. So why is this important to you? I think I've I've been pretty lucky, not only uh, with my upbringing, a kind of suburban Philadelphia, but also uh, with, with my training, with my education. I've got a a lot of fancy degrees from fancy institutions. Um, so for me, it's about making the greatest impact um, and really addressing the fact that there are communities of people in this country that do not get the same resources, do not have the same attention, um, and unfortunately are facing uh, worse health outcomes than others. I, I think just the inequity alone is something that, for me, tugs at my heartstrings. Right. That's really interesting. So I've been kind of fascinated with CityBlock since it was spun out of Alphabet, Google's parent company back in 2017, I believe. So to me, it seemed like it was a startup that has really big ambitions, you know, working with Medicaid patients, working with underserved patients, but has been very quiet about the work it's been doing for, for a number of years. So what made you want to join CityBlock? <laughs> so you mentioned I've worked in different environments. I started out working in corrections. I then went to multiple federally qualified health centers. Um, and then lastly, I've, I've had the honor to serve veterans and their families through the, the Veterans Health Administration. Um, a totally different type of underserved, but yet still a, a, a group of citizens in my mind that just have difficulty accessing care again. Um, so for me to have gone through all of those experiences, um, to learn about our finance system, to learn about managed care, to learn about population health, um, and then eventually the concept of value-based care. Um, for me, it's just been frustrating to see that I, I think we haven't really found the solution yet on how we're going to address inequities. And I think it will be even more difficult if we continue on this path in this fee-for-service sort of model. So for me, having all of these experiences learning um, about CityBlock and, and how it's really seeking to be transformative, 
how we're seeking to, to obviously address those inequities, but do so while taking care of that whole patient, while integrating their care services um, and really closing those gaps that they're facing in their communities. That to me is just the dream job. That's how I keep describing it. This was, this was a dream job. Right. So you brought up, you know, addressing health inequities, which is um, something that I also wanted to touch on. So, you know, what has been working so far? Um, I mean, are these efforts really kind of still too early to kind of really uh, track the progress? You know, you know, where, what are the barriers that still are in place? The naivete of thinking that we're going to be able to solve these problems on our own um, is 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 definitely, I think, pretty pervasive. There's no single solution. These are, are complex issues, just basically ingrained in the history of this country, ingrained in the in the history, even the the way these communities are structured, the way housing is granted, the way education and employment um, is not necessarily equitably distributed throughout this country. I think part of um, the frustration um, is that we're not going to have an immediate solution for these very complex problems, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot that can be done, but is it going to solve the entire problem of inequity alone? There's got to be larger solutions beyond healthcare, even though clearly we're, we're trying to change health outcomes. Right. And I think that's kind of ongoing work, obviously. And at CityBlock, you know, you and your team are trying to address the social needs and the healthcare needs of these underserved patients. So I know you joined as chief health officer in January. Um, What are you pushing forward on right now? You know, what's next for you at CityBlock? So we are, of course, a primary care practice with integrated behavioral health and social care. We're providing care through multiple different modalities to all different ranges of complex patients. So how we're actually going to then close health inequity gaps, address concerns for individual members while also looking across the population, all of that completely starts um, with our data and how we're developing our interventions to directly address um, the problems that we see in the data. So that's where my head is most, uh, starting to design these interventions. I'm really just going head deep into data and trying to develop interventions um, with integrated solutions, um, but to address the most complex of our problems that we're seeing. Okay. So I find it really fascinating that you worked in correctional medicine as an attending physician. I heard you speak recently about your work with jail inmates and the importance of building trust so that patients actually follow treatment plans. You know, why was building trust such a challenge and and how did you go about building that trust? (laughs) Why was it a challenge? I mean, (laughs) it's, uh, you can imagine that anyone, uh, you know, anyone that you come into contact with, uh, unfortunately behind bars, um, you're questioning, particularly as a black or brown male, you're questioning their ability or even willingness to help you. Um, You're questioning whether they're making decisions that are about the financial bottom line or about really just keeping you behind bars. Regardless of whether, you know, someone with doctor in front of their name walks into the room, you're questioning the entire institution that's keeping you behind bars, right? Mm. And and so we were seen as part of that institution. So it, it really was my focus to make sure that the patients that I was treating um, regardless of why they were in there. In fact, I had no clue. It was it was it was completely um, irrelevant to me why they were there. I was just focused on getting them the care that they needed, 
Um, I was unfortunately diagnosing a lot of chronic disease because they hadn't really had primary care or any sort of care even um, outside of the jail. And so for me, just having that conversation with them, educating them on the problems that they had, I was, again, approaching them with the respect that they deserved as a human being, as a patient, as opposed to an inmate. And in fact, it even drove me crazy that they would be called inmates around me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, they're my patients. I could care less where they live. Right. Yeah. I had read from, I think it was the Department of Justice data showing that about 40% of all incarcerated people in the U.S. currently have a chronic disease, and many of which are diagnosed diagnosed for the first time at intake. Um, So it seems that in medical care in prisons and jails is really primary care at a very high and extensive level, right? I mean, you're dealing with kind of a range of health issues, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, left and right, hypertension, diabetes, even COPD had a bunch of smokers. And then, of course, um, it's it's been definitely referenced how uh, our jail and prison system is a source of behavioral health care for a significant portion of our population in this country, right? And and that was that was one of the things that our, our former sheriff in Cook County always used to speak about, that the Cook County Jail was the number one mental health provider in the county. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular patient or a particular situation that kind of stands out in your memory as this, you know, I, wow, I was really able to get through to this patient. I was really able to, to really help, you know, improve this patient's life. Um, so unfortunately, the only reason I say maybe not is because I don't know what happened to them. You know, mm, like okay. I think I, you know, I was able to, to help them, of course, while they were there uh, with me. Um, I, I, definitely have circumstances where I feel I made an impact where they responded appropriately, especially um, uh, a diabetic that I remember who uh, had only just been told that he had diabetes, just been handed a prescription um, and then told to just follow up, but not told who to schedule an appointment with, not told anything about his diet or or exercise or any other needs um, that a typical diabetic should really be aware of. Um, I took the time. I, I had the opportunity. I took the time and educated. I even sh- turned my computer around and, and started showing a great deal of information around it. I, I mean, he just was incredibly grateful and, of course, angry that he had been going around with diabetes and no one had given him this information. Well, how did that work translate to your work with other patient populations? You know, what were some of the biggest lessons you learned during that time that had been helpful for that, throughout your career? I think we simplify things by labeling it primary care versus behavioral health versus nephrology over here and and the number of specialists that a patient needs to get referred to. I understand clearly from an education and and expertise standpoint, we need to segment ourselves in medicine. But when it comes to to patient care, the fact that we don't do better within healthcare of integrating all of those services and then navigating patients between those services, if we can't uh, integrate as much as possible. I think that's the largest failure of the healthcare system. We expect people to understand the complexity of this system, um, where even those of us who have had to interact (laughs) with hospitals, with healthcare systems, are often found at a loss as well, too. I I can completely attest to how lost I felt um, when my mother was admitted to the hospital one time. And it was actually a hospital I was very familiar with. and, And I just was um, obviously emotionally um, uh, a bit disturbed with my mother needing to be admitted. But even then, getting past just the emotional state of it, not really getting a, a good translation of what was happening with her, um, that I, I can't even imagine what one of my patients must be experiencing 
I think it's really your empathy and advocacy for patients that's been recognized um, throughout the industry. You were named a LinkedIn top voice in healthcare, recognized as a thought leader, and we here at Fierce Healthcare named you to our list of 20 healthcare execs to watch. And that's a high bar. We take that seriously. What does it mean to you to be a thought leader? How do you use your platform as a doctor? I'm so honored, first of all, to to have all of all of this recognition. Um, for me, it means that it is now placed on me. It is now my duty to make a difference, to try to be part of a solution and not just to continue to perpetuate. If I'm really meant to be someone who's making a difference, then I need to continue on in that path. and and Yeah, well, I will definitely be tracking CityBlock's progress and the work you do there. Um, You're among a number of of healthcare leaders that are working to address diversity in medicine. You co-founded an organization called Tour for Diversity in Medicine to help inspire more students from underrepresented groups to go into the field. And I read somewhere that you said, because you can't be what you can't see. So why is this work important to you? I really do think if we're going to discuss inequities in healthcare. Uh, We need to be as broad-based in our solutions. And it's not just enough to say um, we're going to do more for Black or Brown communities. We actually need to think about the teams who are providing those services. Mm -hmm. Plenty of evidence, plenty of literature points to the fact that if you diversify the healthcare workforce, if you uh, really look towards racial concordance between patient and caregiver, uh, you're going to see different outcomes. You're going to um, have the patients actually adhere to their treatment plans more. You're going to see um, actually better care provided, better patient outcomes uh, achieved when you actually have racial concordance. And so for me, this is just one solution of many uh, to address health equity. And you clearly have a passion for that for that issue. Now, can you tell me about a time when you realized you were in the right line of work? You realized you could make an important difference. Hands down, it was in the jail. Um, so my first job out of residency was at Cook County Jail. And trust me, everybody was like, what are you doing? You know, my <laughs> dad was like, why are you going to the jail willingly? You know, um, But when I realized um, the impact that I could have on, on those individual patients, and then I actually took on a committee, so I was able to help make some policy um, with regard to transgender health um, mm-hmm. and, and tr- my transgender patients in the jail, I was able to to work with corrections to make sure that their security needs were met. That was when I, I said, oh, I'm, in, I'm in the right field. I'm, I'm helping people who need me the most absolutely look at correctional medicine as something I could potentially return to later in my career. It's given a bad rep at times, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's also... Um, obviously a, a community that we have um, ignored. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's an area where we need great, passionate doctors such as you. I think <laughs> that's part of the solution, I think. Hopefully, yes. And now you're focused on, you know, obviously help helping underserved patients at CityBlock. What should the industry expect from CityBlock, um, you know, going forward? I think there's plenty to expect from CityBlock. We have a lot coming down the pike as far as uh, potentially new geographies we're going into, um, different uh, care interventions, as we call them, that that we're building out, uh, really about focusing on integration, again, focusing on uh, a significant focus on behavioral health, and then focusing on on different population, our, our women, particularly 
um, in light of uh, the Dobbs decision, um, we're really ha- putting forth a, some concerted effort on, on how we're helping our, our female members in particular. It's more than just the, the bottom line. We're more than just businesses. We, are, we have the responsibility, the, the accountability for taking care of people. And again, not just patients. And so I, I think you'll continue to see how City Block is making a difference in that space. Cameron, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was really fascinating to hear your perspective on caring for underserved patients. Oh, thanks so much, Heather. Thanks for letting me share my story. That was Senior Editor Heather Landy with Dr. Cameron Matthews from City Block Health. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And since we're a new podcast, be sure to subscribe to our feed to hear us every Wednesday. We've got more great stuff to come. So just ask your smart speaker to play Podnosis. Podnosis.